Chapter 11 of The Rough Road by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 11 We're all very proud of you, Marmaduke, said the Dean. I think you're just splendid, said Peggy. They were sitting in Doggy's rooms in Woburn Place, Doggy having been given his three days' leave before going to France. Once again, Durdlebury had come to Doggy, and not Doggy to Durdlebury. Aunt Sophia, however, somewhat ailing, had stayed at home. Doggy stood awkwardly before them, conscious of swollen hands and broken nails, shapeless ammunition boots and ill-fitting slacks, morbidly conscious, too, of his original failure. "'You're about ten inches more round the chest than you were,' said the Dean, admiringly. "'And the picture of health!' cried Peggy. "'To anyone who has a sound constitution,' answered Doggy, "'it's quite a healthy life.' "'Now that you've got into the way, I'm sure you must really love it,' said Peggy, with an encouraging smile. "'It isn't so bad,' he replied. "'What none of us can quite understand, my dear fellow,' said the Dean, "'is your shying at Durdlebury. As we have written you, everybody's singing your praises. Not a soul but would have given you a hearty welcome.' "'Besides,' Peggy chimed in, "'you needn't have made an exhibition of yourself in the town if you didn't want to.' "'The poor pedals are woefully disappointed.' "'There's a war going on. "'They must bear up, like loads of other people,' replied Doggy. "'He's becoming quite cynical,' Peggy laughed. "'But apart from the pedals, there's your own beautiful house waiting for you. "'It seems so funny not to go into it instead of moping in these fussy lodgings.' "'Perhaps,' said Doggy quietly, "'if I went there I should never want to come back.' "'There's something to be said from that point of view,' the Dean admitted. A solution of continuity is never quite without its dangers. Even Oliver confessed as much. Oliver? Yes, didn't Peggy tell you? I didn't think Marmaduke could be interested, said Peggy quickly. He and Oliver have never been what you might call bosom friends. I shouldn't have minded about hearing of him, said Doggy. Why should I? What's he doing? The dean gave information. Oliver, now a captain, had come home on leave a month ago, and had spent some of it at the deanery. He'd seen a good deal of fighting, had had one or two narrow escapes. "'Was he keen to get back?' asked Doggy. The dean smiled. "'I instance his case in my remark as to the dangers of the solution of continuity.' "'Oh, rubbish, Daddy!' cried his daughter with a flush. "'Oliver is as keen as mustard.' The dean made a little suggestion of submission. She continued— he doesn't like the beastness out there for its own sake, as any more than Marmaduke will. But he simply loves his job. He's improved tremendously. Once he thought he was the only man in the country who had seen life stark naked, and he put on frills accordingly. Now that he's just one of a million who have been up against life stripped to his skeleton, he's a bit subdued. "'I'm glad of that,' said Doggy. The dean, urbanely indulgent, joined his fingertips together and smiled. "'Peggy is right,' said he, "'although I don't wholly approve of her modern lack of reticence in metaphor. "'Oliver is coming out true gold from the fire. "'He's a capital fellow, and he spoke of you, my dear Marmaduke, "'in the kindest way in the world. "'He has a tremendous admiration for your pluck.' "'That's uh, very good of him, I'm sure,' said Doggy. "'Presently the dean, good, tactful man, "'discovered that he must go out and have a prescription made up at a chemist's.' that arch-hun enemy, the gout, against which he must never be unprepared. 
he would be back in time for dinner. The engaged couple were left alone. "'Well?' said Peggy. "'Well, dear,' said Doggy. Her lips invited. He responded. She drew him to the saddle-back sofa, and they sat down side by side. "'I quite understand, dear old thing,' she said. "'I know the resignation and the rest of it hurt you awfully. It hurt me. But it's no use grousing over spilt milk. You've already mopped it all up. It's no disgrace to be a private. It's an honour. There are thousands of gentlemen in the ranks. Besides, you'll work your way up, and they'll offer you another commission in no time.' "'You're very good and sweet, dear,' said Doggy, "'to have such faith in me. "'But I've had a year.' "'A year?' cried Peggy. "'Good Lord, so it is!' "'She counted on her fingers. "'Not quite, but eleven months. "'It's eleven months since I've seen you. "'Do you realise that? "'The war has put a stop to time. "'It is just one endless day.' "'One awful endless day,' Doggy acquiesced with a smile. "'But I was saying—' "'I've had a year, or an endless day, of eleven months, in which to learn myself. "'What I don't know about myself isn't knowledge.' "'Peggy interrupted with a laugh. "'You must be a wonder. Dad's always preaching about self-knowledge. "'Tell me all about it.' "'Doggy shook his head, at the same time passing his hand over it in a familiar gesture. "'Then Peggy cried. "'I knew there was something wrong with you. Why didn't you tell me? "'You've had your hair cut, cut quite differently.' It was MacPhail, careful godfather, who had taken him in as a recruit to the regimental barber, and prescribed a transformation from the sleek long hair brushed back over the head to a conventional military crop with a rudiment of a side-parting. On the crown a few bristles stood up, as if uncertain which way to go. "'It's advisable,' Doggy replied, "'for a Tommy's hair to be cut as short as possible. The Germans are sheared like convicts.' Peggy regarded him open-eyed and puzzle-browed. He enlightened her no further, but pursued the main proposition. "'I wouldn't take a commission,' said he, "'if the war office went mad and sank on its knees and beat its head in the dust before me.' "'In heaven's name, why not?' "'I've learned my place in the world,' said Doggy. Peggy shook him by the shoulder and turned on him her young, eager face. "'Your place in the world is that of a cultivated gentleman of old family, Marmaduke Trevor of Denby Hall.' "'That was the funny old world,' said he, "'that stood on its legs, legs wide apart, with its hands beneath the tails of its dress-coat, in front of the drawing-room fire. The present world's standing on its head. Everything's upside down. It has no sort of use for Marmaduke Trevor of Denby Hall. No more use than for Goliath.' "'By the way, how is the poor little beast getting on?' Peggy laughed. "'Oh, Goliath is perfectly assured of his position. He's got it rammed into his mind that he drives the two-seater.' She returned to the attack. "'Do you intend always to remain a private?' "'I do,' said he. "'Not even a corporal. You see, I've learned to be a private of sorts, and that satisfies my ambition.' "'Well, I give up,' said Peggy. "'Though why you wouldn't let Dad get to you a nice cushy job is a thing I can't understand. For the life of me I can't.' "'I've made my bed, and I must lie on it,' he said quietly. "'I don't believe you've got such a thing as a bed.' Doggy smiled. "'Oh, yes, a bed of a sort.' Then, noting her puzzled face, he said consolingly, "'It'll all come right when the war's over.' "'But when will that be? And who knows, my dear man, what may happen to you?' "'If I'm knocked out, I'm knocked out, and there's an end of it,' 
replied Doggy philosophically. She put her hand on his. But what's to become of me? We needn't cry over my corpse yet, said Doggy. The dean, after a while, returned with his bottle of medicine, which he displayed with conscientious ostentation. They dined. Peggy again went over the ground of the possible commission. "'I'm afraid she's set her heart on it, my boy,' said the dean. Peggy cried a little on parting. This time Doggy was going, not to the fringe, but to the heart of the great adventure, into the thick of the carnage. A year ago, she said through her tears, she would have thought herself much more fitted for it than Marmaduke. "'Perhaps you are still, dear,' said Doggy, with his patient smile. He saw them to the taxi, which was to take them to the familiar Sturrockses. Before getting in, Peggy embraced him. "'Keep out of the way of shells and bullets as much as you can.' The dean blew his nose, God blessed him, and murmured something incoherent about fighting for the glory of old England. "'Good luck!' cried Peggy from the window. She blew him a kiss. The taxi drove off, and Doggy went back into the house with leaden feet. The meeting, which he had morbidly dreaded, had brought him no comfort. It had not removed the invisible barrier between Peggy and himself. But Peggy seemed so unconscious of it that he began to wonder whether it only existed in his diseased imagination. Though by his silences and reserves he had given her cause for resentment and reproach, her attitude was nothing less than angelic. He sat down moodily in an armchair, his hands deep in his trouser pockets and his legs stretched out. The fault lay in himself, he argued. What was the matter with him? He seemed to have lost all human feeling, like the man with the stone heart in the old legend. Otherwise, why had he felt no prick of jealousy at Peggy's admiring comprehension of Oliver? Of course he loved her. Of course he wanted to marry her when this nightmare was over. That went without saying. But why couldn't he look to the glowing future? A poet had called a lover's mistress the lodestar of his one desire. That to him Peggy ought to be. Lodestar. One desire. The words confused him. He had no lodestar. His one desire was to be left alone. Without doubt he was suffering from some process of moral petrifaction. Doggy was no psychologist. He had never acquired the habit of turning himself inside out and gloating over the horrid spectacle. All his life he had been a simple soul with simple motives and a simple, though possibly selfish, standard to measure them. But now his soul was knocked into a chaotic state of complexity, and his poor little standards were no manner of use. He saw himself as in a glass, darkly, mystified by unknown change. He rose, sighed, shook himself. "'I give it up,' said he, and went to bed. Doggy went to France, a France hitherto undreamed of, either by him or by any young Englishman, a France clean-swept and garnished for war, a France, save for the ubiquitous English soldiery, of silent towns and empty villages and deserted roads, a France of smiling fields and sorrowful faces of women and drawn, patient faces of old men, and even then the women and old men were rarely met by day, for they were at work on the land, solitary figures on the landscape, with vast spaces between them. In the quiet townships, English street signs and placards conflicted with the sense of being in friendly provincial France, and gave the impression of foreign domination. 
for beyond that long, grim line of eternal thunder, away over there in the distance, which was called the front, street signs and placards in yet another alien tongue also outraged the serene genius of French urban life. Yet our signs were a symbol of a mighty empire's brotherhood, and the dimmed eyes that beheld the Place de la Fontaine transformed into Holborn Circus, and the Grand Rue into Piccadilly, smiled, and the owners, with eager courtesy, directed the stray Tommy to Regent Street, which they had known all their life as the Rue Feuille-Mamasnil, a word which Tommy could not pronounce, still less remember. It was as much as Tommy could do to get the hold of an approximation to the name of the town. And besides these renamings, other inscriptions flamed about the streets, alphabetic hieroglyphs in which the mystic letters HQ most often appeared, this way to the YMCA hut, in many humble windows the startling announcement, washing done here. British motor lorries and ambulances crowded the little plus and aligned along the avenues. British faces, British voices everywhere. The blue uniform and blue helmet of a French soldier seemed as incongruous, though as welcome, as in London. And the straight, endless roads, so French with their infinite border of poplars, their patient little stones marking every hundred metres, until the tenth rose into the proud kilometre stone, proclaiming the distance to the next stately town, rang too with the sound of British voices, and the tramp of British feet, and the clatter of British transport, and the screech and whir of cars, revealing as they passed the flash of red and gold of the British staff. Yet the finely cultivated land remained to show that it was France, and the little whitewashed villages, the curé in shovel hat and rusty cassock, the children in blue or black blouses, who stared as the British troops went by, the patient elderly French territorials in their old pre-war uniforms, guarding unthreatened culverts or repairing the roads, the helpful sign set up in happier days by the touring club of France. Into this strange anomaly of a land came Doggy with his draught, still half stupefied by the remorselessness of the stupendous machine in which he had been caught, in spite of his many months of training in England. He had loathed the East Coast camp. When he landed at Boulogne in the dark and the pouring rain, and hunched his pack with the others, who went off singing to the rest camp, he regretted East Anglia. "'Give us a turn on the whistle, Doggy,' said a corporal. "'I was seasick into it and threw it overboard,' he growled, stumbling over the rails of the quay. "'Oh, you only young liar!' said the man next to him. But Doggy did not trouble to reply, his neighbour being only a private like himself. Then the draft joined its unit. In his youth, Doggy had often wondered at the meaning of the familiar inscription on every goods van in France, Quarante hommes, huit chevaux. Now he ceased to wonder. He was one of the forty men. At the railhead he began to march, and at last joined the remnant of his battalion. They had been through hard fighting, and were now in billets. Until he joined them, he had not realised the drain there had been on the reserves at home. Very many familiar faces of officers were missing. New men had taken their place, and very many of his old comrades had gone, some to Blighty, some west of that island of desire, and those who remained had the eyes of children who passed through the valley of the shadow of death. Macphail and Moshendish had passed through unscathed. In the reconstruction of the regiment, 
chance willed that the three of them found themselves in the same platoon of A Company. Doggy almost embraced them when they met. Laddie said MacPhail to him, as he was drinking a mahogany-coloured liquid that was known by the name of tea out of a tin mug and eating a hunk of bread and jam. I don't know whether or not I'm pleased to see you. You are safer in England. Once I misspent many months of my life in shielding you from the dangers of France. But France is a much more dangerous place nowadays, and I can't help you. You've come right into the thick of it. Just listen to the hell's delight that's going on over yonder. The easterly wind brought them the raw street with stridents of the artillery duel in progress in the nearest flexion of the front. They were sitting in the cellar entrance to a house in a little town which had already been somewhat mauled. Just opposite was a shuttered house on the ground floor of which had been a hatter and hosier's shop, and there still swung bravely on an iron rod the red brim of what once had been a monstrous red hat. Next door, the façade of the upper stories had been shelled away, and the naked interiors gave the impression of a pathetic doll's house. Women's garments still hung on pegs. A cottage piano lurched forward drunkenly on three legs, with the keyboard ripped open, the treble notes on the ground, the bass incongruously in the air. In the attic, ironically secure, hung a cheap German print of blousy children feeding a pig. The wide flagstone street smelt sour. At various cavern doors sat groups of the billeted soldiers. Now and then squads marched up and down, monotonously clad in khaki and dun-coloured helmets. Officers, some only recognisable by the same brown belt, others spruce and point device, passed by. Here and there a shop was open, and the elderly proprietor and his wife stood by the doorway to get the afternoon air. Women and children straggled rarely through the streets. The Bosch had left the little town alone for some time. They had other things to do with their heavy guns. And all the French population, save those whose homes were reduced to nothingness, had remained. They took no notice of the distant bombardment. It had grown to be a phenomenon of nature, like the wind and the rain. But to Doggy it was new. Just the sight of the wrecked house opposite, with its sturdy, crownless hat-brim of a sign, was new. He listened, as MacPhail had bidden him, to the artillery duel, with an odd little spasm of his heart. "'What do you think of that now?' asked MacPhail grandly, as if it was the greatest show on earth run by him, the proprietor. "'It's rather noisy,' said Doggy, with a little ironical twist of his lips that was growing habitual. "'Did they keep it up at night?' "'They do.' "'I don't think it's fair to interfere with one's sleep like that,' said Doggy. "'You've got to adapt yourself to it,' said MacPhail sagely. "'No doubt you'll be remembering my theory of adaptability. "'Through that I've made myself into a very brave man. "'When I wanted to run away—a very natural desire, "'considering the scrupulous attention I've always paid to my bodily well-being— "'I reflected on the preposterous obstacles put in the way of flight "'by a bulless military system, "'and adapted myself to the static and dynamic conditions of the trenches.' "'Oh, blimey!' said Mo Shendish, stretched out by his side. "'Just listen to him.' "'I suppose you'll say you sucked honey out of the shells,' remarked Doggy. "'I'm no great hand at mixing metaphors.' "'What about drinks?' asked Mo. Uh, "'No drinks either,' replied MacPhail. "'Both are bad for the brain. "'But as to what you were saying, laddie, "'I'll not deny that I've derived considerable interest "'and amusement from a bombardment. "'Yet it has its sad aspect.' 
He paused for a moment or two. "'Man,' he continued, "'what an awful waste of money!' "'I don't know what old Mac is joined about,' said Merchendish. "'But you can take it from me, he's a holy terror with a bayonet. "'One moment he's talking to a boss to his hat, "'the next the boss is wriggling like a worm on a bent pin.' "'Mo winked at Phineas. "'The temptation to tell the tale to the newcomer was too strong. "'Doggy grew very serious. "'You've been killing men like that?' "'Thousands, laddie,' replied Phineas, the picture of unboastful veracity. "'And so has Mo.' Shendish, helmeted, browned, dried, toughened, a very different Mo from the padded ferret whom Aggie had driven into the ranks of war, hunched himself up, his hands clasping his knees. "'I don't mind doing it when you're so excited you don't know where you are,' said he. "'But I don't like thinking of it afterwards.' As a matter of fact, he had only once got home with the bayonet, and the memory was unpleasant. "'But you've just thought of it,' said Phineas. "'It was you, not me,' said Mo. "'That makes all the difference.' "'It's astonishing,' Phineas remarked sententiously, "'how many people are not only refused to catch pleasure as it flies, "'but spurn it when it sits up and begs at them.' "'Laddie,' he turned to Doggy, "'the more one wallows in hedonism, "'the more one realises its unplumbed depths.' A little girl of ten, neatly pigtailed but piteously shod, came near and cast a child's envious eye on Doggy's bread and jam. "'Approach, my little one!' Phineas cried in French words, but with the accent of Socky Hall Street. "'If I gave you a franc, what would you do with it?' "'I should buy nourishment de la nature for maman.' "'Lend me a franc, laddie,' said MacPhail. And when Doggy had slipped the coin into his palm, he addressed the child in unintelligible grandiloquence, and sent her on her way, mystified but rejoicing. "'Si bon drôle, "'Ah, laddie!' cried Phineas, stretching himself out comfortably by the jamb of the door. "'You've got to learn to savour the exquisite pleasure of a genuinely kindly act.' "'Hold on!' cried Mo. "'It was Doggy's money you were flinging about.' MacPhail withered him with a glance. "'You're an unphilosophical ignoramus,' said he. End of chapter 11